0: Today's reading can be found in the New Testament in the Book of Romans, chapter 12, verses one to eight. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of one of us has a body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though we are many, for one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we've just sung those words, we are one, in the Father's love. And we know, Father, that those words are easy to declare but hard to put into practice. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand what you're saying to us in your word. And, Father, by your Spirit, please give us the hearts wanting to live it out. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most surprising things I've found as a parent with young children is just how children have got this amazing ability to determine what's fair and what's uh, equitable. Uh, In the morning we give them a cup of orange juice with their morning cereal and um, my children have got this amazing ability to determine what the volume of the liquid is in each glass to the millilitre. And so I find myself at 7.30 in the morning trying to do a precision chemistry experiment between the two glasses, making sure they're completely fair and we don't have any arguments. I mean, we all know what that sense of comparison is like, don't we? But unfortunately, it's not something that just kind of evaporates as we become adults. We constantly look over our shoulders or look over our fences and compare ourselves with others. We look and we think, they've got what I want or they're doing what I want to do, or they're with who I want to be with. And we become envious, we're driven uh, to work harder, to borrow more, to keep up uh, with those around us. I love the book of Ecclesiastes, written nearly 3,000 years ago, and uh, here's a verse from Ecclesiastes, which I think is just as relevant as it was then for today. The author says this, I saw all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another it's very penetrating isn't it about our culture actually lots of us he's saying work just to kind of keep up with the joneses now the question is is that how the church is to work sure that's the way the world works but what are we meant to do as a church family how are we meant to be different Well, it seems for the church in Rome that there was the tendency to be more like the world in this area. Now, I know we've been looking at Romans over the last sort of four, three or four years, I think. We're now getting to the final four chapters. Um, I'm not going to blame you for not remembering what we've looked at before, because I think it was almost two years ago we got a chance. But this, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Romans and looking at these final four chapters. And um, just look uh, at what we've seen, um, I think in 2019, uh, in chapter 11, verse 18. He says this, do not, um, chapter 11, verse 18, that's all right, yes. Do not consider yourselves to be superior to the other branches. Now, what's he speaking about there? Where well, he's speaking about Jewish people and Gentile people, and he says about the people who have rejected the gospel, do not think you're superior to them. Do not look down your noses at them. And a a couple of pages over in chapter 14, verse 4, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, he says this, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? See, in chapter 14, we see that people are competing in the church, thinking, I've got a better faith than you. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? Who are you to look down at someone else? We all know the result of that type of thinking. It's in our offices, it's in our friendship groups. If you're at the top, you feel proud, you feel superior, you feel like you're the the man or woman. But if you're at the bottom, you feel pretty worthless, pretty resentful, and you just don't want to go there. And actually, Paul says that the church is to have a far different mood music. It is not to live that way. The question is, though, how do we get there? Well, we see, first of all here, um, that change begins with worship. Secondly, change centers on the mind. And thirdly, change acts. See, first of all, change begins with worship. Now, I wonder what image comes into your head when I mention the word worship. I guess lots of us are thinking about songs, perhaps someone in a kind of worship concert, uh, perhaps elevating their hands. Or if we're more traditional, perhaps the cathedral, with the organ blaring and the incense, doing whatever incense does, flowing. But actually, Paul gives a far different explanation of worship. Look at verse 1 with me. He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Notice he's not speaking about kind of singing, he's speaking about giving your bodies. And when he talks about bodies, he doesn't mean just the kind of flesh bit of us, he means our whole selves. And you'll notice the image he uses, he talks about sacrifices. Now, he doesn't mean by that that we kind of um, need to kind of end our lives or anything like that, but he's talking about uh, the, the Old Testament sacrifices, See, when they were to be sacrifices, they were considered holy, set apart for God. And Paul says, look, the moment you become a Christian, your whole life goes into a different category. It's set apart for God's service, for his holiness. Now, maybe that doesn't sound very enticing, or maybe we think to ourselves, um, what does that look like? But notice how he describes this. He describes it as worship. Worship. It's a strange way of describing it, isn't it? Why does he go for worship? Well, as we see in Romans, everything is actually about worship. Worship isn't just a kind of religious idea. It's not something we just do in church. Uh, See, worship happens every Saturday. It happens at Old Trafford. It happens at the Emirates. It happens at the Cop. See, what do you do when you see someone score a goal in the right net? Well, you lift up your arms. You sing you praise, or at least we used to before COVID. And that's what we're doing, we're giving worth to the talent we're seeing on display. That's all worship means, to give worth to something. And Paul says, actually, when he's diagnosing the big problem with our world, he says, actually, it's a worship problem. So you look over the page back to chapter 1, verse 24, he says this, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised Amen. So, you see the big problem, if we just have that verse back on. The big problem with our world is a worship problem. Verse 25, there's been a big exchange. The whole world's gone topsy-turvy As the creation has gone above the creator. See, worship is the problem. He does talk about sins, but actually, before he gets to sins, he says worship is the cause. And actually, if you think about that, you know that's the case, don't you? If you worship your career, if your whole identity is tied to your career, well, what happens when someone's promoted over you? Well, then you start to envy you might plot your revenge. See, that results in sin. Or if your whole motivation is approval, what people think of you, well, you'll be tempted to lie. Or you'll be tempted to gossip, to fit in. See, the whole problem with our world is a worship problem, not putting God in his right place, but putting created things above him. But here in chapter 12, it gets put the right way up. See, he um, calls this worship uh, spiritual, but um, if you look at the footnote in um, the NIV Bible, it it says that actually the word there is reasonable. Spiritual is not quite the right word for it. It's it's reasonable, but even that just sounds a bit sort of um, um, mild. Uh, Reasonable worship doesn't sound very exciting. It's reasonable in the sense that it fits. Uh, If you're watching an England match, Harry Kane fires in a goal uh, into the back of the opponent's net... What's the reasonable thing to do? Well, you don't even have, have to ask, do you? If you're an England fan, you're, you're cheering. It's fitting. That's what we should do. And Paul says, look, in line of, in view of God's mercy or his mercies, actually, it's fitting, it's reasonable, it's appropriate that we respond uh, in this uh, worship. Uh, on the diagram, you'll see uh, how chapter 12 fits with chapter 1, 1. Um, I'm very grateful for other authors who have pointed this out. But in chapter 1, the creation is put the wrong way around. It's put above the creator, and it's not great. Uh, And then in chapter 12, actually the whole thing gets turned the right way up. That actually the creator is um, put in his his right place. And actually the whole of our lives are to be changed as a result of that. Years ago, I had a, um, a, a laptop uh, that was pretty, pretty expensive, but pretty, uh, pretty slow. Uh, it, was, um, uh, it was so slow that every year or so, you would um, have to kind of reset the whole thing. I don't know if people still do that. I, it was something you had to do, because after a while, you start using it, it gets so filled up, it gets so slow that you find you have to turn it on, go and make a T just to wait for it to, to load up. But thankfully, computers are a bit better now. But what I used to do over the summer, it's a little treat for me, I would wipe the complete hard disk, I would reload the factory settings, and it was like a brand new machine for a couple of minutes uh, before it filled up again. And, And it's that kind of idea here, that actually the gospel kind of resets the whole thing, that the whole thing kind of reconfigures to what we're made for. See, you and me are not made to worship the creation. It ends badly when we put things like career and relationships in the prime place in our lives. But actually, God in the gospel transforms us so that actually we become what we were designed to be. And I wonder if we see that, because as evangelicals, I'm I'm happy about this, but we, we emphasize, don't we, the gospel that God has entered into our world in the Lord Jesus, to save us. And that is completely true, and it's completely wonderful, and Paul devotes chapters 1 to 11 to declare that truth. But we mustn't forget that there's chapters 12 to 16 as well, that having now done that, actually that's to trickle into all areas of our lives, our desires, our emotions, the things we live for, the things we pay for, everything, our whole lives, is, is changed. So we're designed to worship As we were made. Now, that probably sounds a bit sort of vast, doesn't it? I mean, how are we to do that? Well, secondly, Paul focuses uh, this change uh, on the mind. Have a look at verse 2. See what he says. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when he speaks about God's will there, he's not speaking about our kind of, um, what's God's will for my career, what's God's will for my relationship, or what house I should buy, or what I should watch on the telly. He's talking about what's good, what's appropriate, what's right worship. And Paul says that actually, we get that will, that we get that right worship in our minds. And notice what he says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Now, when he says the word world, sorry if this, this is a little bit heavy, but we'll come up for air in a moment. When he says world, it's the word age, in fact. And Paul, in chapter 13, shows us that actually Christians live in an overlap of ages. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 12. He says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Now, he's not saying I'm writing at... Dawn. He's saying that Christians live like it's dawn. It's the night is coming to an end. The day is almost here, and we live in that overlap of ages. And it's so easy in that overlap of ages, isn't it, to take our cue from what the world is saying, what the world believes, and what the principles of the world are. But Paul says we need to have our mood music set by this new age that God has brought in in the gospel. One of the things I love about St. Mary's is the fact that we're all from different church backgrounds. Uh, there are those of us who are Anglicans, but they're also Baptists and Independents and Methodists and Pentecostals. And I'm so sorry if I've left your group out. Uh, but uh, what we might term those kind of groups that we would have said um, in, in old-fashioned language, we might, termed, uh, might have termed them non-conformists. But actually, all of us are nonconformists, aren't we? It's not just the uh, non-Anglicans. Even the Anglicans are non-conformists. Because we're not to conform to this world, but to be renewed in our minds. Now, what does this look like? What does this mean? Well, when Paul talks about the mind, he's not just talking about the thinking part of us. He's speaking about the inner self. See, the mind in the Bible is like the parliament for the body that actually all our desires, all our decisions come from inside. And so what Paul says here is that change doesn't ultimately happen outward in, but inward out, as we apply the gospel to our lives, as we're renewed in our minds. Now, this is a trivial example, but, um, but it's the only one I could think of in the time. But when I was at university, I used to live on a diet of hot dog sausages every single day, uh, they were 20p a can, as to smart price, hot dog sausages, and you could, uh, there were eight of them, you could lay them out on a plate, uh, you could microwave them, you could put the bread and make the sandwich on your hand, and so you could just wipe the plate and put it back in the cupboard after you finished. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, <laughs> I then read something that suggested eating eight hot dog sausages a day is not the right thing to do. Apparently, they are carcinogenic, and apparently, it increases your risk of cancer. Now, I'm not saying that if you've got hot dogs for lunch to put you off, they're okay in moderation. But if you live on a diet of them, actually, it's probably not going to end well. But the thing is, as soon as I read that, my mind changed. I didn't eat hot dog sausages anymore. I've never eaten them since. Someone could have come to me and said, stop eating them, that's not a good idea. I wouldn't have done it but it's as I saw the truth about my diets that actually my actions changed. And this is what happens in the Gospel, is as God changes our minds, as we hear his word declared each week, as we read it, as we process it, that actually our lives follow. See, the big focus is not on just being seen to do the right thing. Actually, it's on God changing us through the Gospel And what is it he is changing in us? Well, verse 3 gives us the answer. He says, For by the grace that is given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now, I did say we're going to come up for air, but not just yet. Um, Because when he says think there, he means how we perceive ourselves. And when he talks about the measure of faith, he's talking about measure as in like a tape measure. We take a tape measure out, don't we, to see how tall we are. You may guess that I'm seven foot, you may guess I'm eight foot, but it's as we take the measure out, you'll see that I'm six foot five. And Paul is saying that all of us need to measure our Christian lives against the measure of faith. See, faith is the great leveler, isn't it? In chapter 3, he says, no one is righteous, no one is good, no one has sought God. All have turned away. See, all of us are in the same category. God scares the whole of humanity, and there's not a single one who seeks after him. But the wonderful thing is the Lord Jesus has stepped in to our world. He has lived that life seeking after God, and he has died in our place so that now we may be considered with him righteous in God's sight and faith is the declaration that that is true uh, some people say faith is the empty hand which grasps onto the gospel we've got nothing to boast in in ourselves but it's God's pure mercy now that doesn't mean we go around kind of um, thinking we're really worthless and really useless, Uh, because that's not what faith does. Faith uh, gets us to see we've got no strength in ourselves, but it does get us to see God's wonderful grace in the Lord Jesus. But it does mean that we never sort of sit on our own podiums thinking we're better than we are. Uh, Christopher Rush has written a book on Romans, absolutely fantastic, it's worth getting, Uh, it's two volumes, and uh, it looks very short, but it's packed with um, incredible insights and he asked this question uh, right at the beginning of these chapters how do we answer when someone asks how have things been with you what do we say when we write in our christmas newsletters about the past year sometimes we're not sure how to sum it up but he says here this should be the constant background music to the christian life god has been very kind to me he has shown me patient compassion and mercy he has taken pity on me. So he says this, God's grace in every church should be the steady background of music to our lives. Now what does this look like for a church to have our minds renewed, to have that mood music uh, in our lives? Well, Paul gets on to um, what that looks like in these uh, in what follows. So, uh, over the next few weeks, uh, he sets out what what he establishes in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are like the headline for this whole section. But he does go on to one important place uh, in our passage today. He goes on to spiritual gifts in verse 6. He speaks about prophecy and service and encouragement and contributing to needs. Now, one of the big questions I've had as I've been prepping this is thinking, this feels like a different sermon. I mean, what's the link between the gifts and what Paul's just said about the gospel shaping our lives? But then I notice what Paul says about these gifts. Have a look at um, how he describes himself. Verse 3. For by grace, by the grace given to me, See, Paul doesn't say, I'm an apostle, do this. He doesn't say, I'm a big deal, do this. He says, for the grace given to me, I say, and notice what he says in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. See, Paul wants to drive home the point that our gifts, our abilities, our talents, are purely a result of God's kindness and mercy, like everything else. See, in the Roman world, um, they had something called uh, the course of honours. I guess it was an ancient rat race. Um, Everyone knew their position on it. It was a kind of course, I think we've got a diagram here uh, on the screen. Yeah, it was a course you could follow to get to the kind of top job. And so you'd have to do a bit of time in the military, and uh, it was literally set out, after a year you can do this, if you've reached this minimum age you can do that, and eventually become uh, top dog. And that's the kind of world this church is growing up in. I guess we call it um, things like the rat race, the, the greasy pole. And we all know, don't we, that actually our world works on that s- principle. We look up to the jobs we want to get to. We look down on those jobs we don't want to do. And the thing is, there can be a Christian version of that, can't there? We've all probably got that hypothetical list in our head of the top gifts. I don't know, The bishop or something like that. And then we've got those gifts at the bottom that we don't want God to ask us to do. I won't name them, uh, to avoid embarrassment. And the thing is, that can very easily, and i I, I include myself in this, um, lead us to envy and resentment of others. And we think, God, why haven't you given me that gift? Why haven't you given me that ability? I so wanted to be a bishop, I so wanted to be an author, Or we look down when we've got those gifts with pride at others and thinking God must really value me more than that person uh, sweeping the path. But actually the church is not to operate according to that mood music. It's to be so different. See, notice what he emphasizes in verse 4. He says that just each of us has one body with many members and these members do not have the same function. So in Christ we are Many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. See, his point is that we are one. We're one body. In chapter 5, he said Christ has stepped in as a new Adam, a new humanity, and that we're all connected to one another. And so there can be no sense of looking down our noses with a sense of superiority at others, or looking up with envy at those who seem to have the talents we want. There was a thing I read by the reformer Martin Luther a few years ago, and it really struck me. It's called um, On the Freedom of a Christian. Um, You can get it online. It's not too long. Um, And one of the things he argues in that um, paper is that uh, actually the gospel is the only way to free you for genuine service. Uh, Because he argues that actually if we're doing things in church, if we're doing things to look good, if we're doing things to support our own ego then actually we're not doing them for the intention they're made. Uh, We might go and help someone uh, in a soup kitchen, but if we're doing that to to boost our social media profile, well then we're really only doing it to serve ourselves. But Leitha then goes on to say, actually it's the gospel that enables you to do that, because the gospel says to you, you cannot have any claim of superiority. Actually, you've got nothing to bring to the party. It is faith and faith alone. And having now established that, you can be free to serve others. Because you're not doing it as a personal ego trip, or at least you shouldn't be. And that's a wonderful thing. When you're serving someone, you're serving them through God's grace, uh, through his ability, through the fact that he's included you. If you're teaching them, well, you're doing exactly the same. Uh, One of the things about this list is notice there's no hierarchy, is there? See, if you were writing this in the Roman world, you would write it in hierarchical order. But actually, serving is right there at the top in verse 7. Teaching's halfway through. Showing mercy at the bottom. There's no sense in which these are the better gifts, these are the ones to get, these are the ones to avoid. And so, actually, all of them are uh, uh, valued gifts. But also, notice what he says about each of those gifts. They're used... For others, see if it's serving, verse 7, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. Now, why does he say that? Well, he's saying that because those are what the gifts are intended for. See, it's as you take the focus off yourself and your status, then actually you can be free to serve others. I've been reading the um, final book, uh, this book called Give Up uh, the Purple. And it's on um, Christian leadership. It's written by a guy in the Middle East who uh, has some experience of working uh, with leaders there. And there's an incredible chapter where he speaks about just how the disciples really don't get this principle. He said, despite Jesus' three years with them, what he calls his masterly training program, even at the Last Supper, they're arguing about who is the greatest Imagine that, Jesus just about to go to his death. It looked like the whole project had failed. But he says this, Jesus still had one more move. As Peter declared, I will never forsake you, he did exactly that. Despite all their boasts, all their uh, commitment to be ready to die for him, he says it must have been a devastating blow for their pride, as only John was left at the cross but he goes on to say this. Yet it was not the end for the disciples. Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to them and lovingly restored them. And then he says this. The disciples never again squabbled about who was the greatest or competed with one another for preeminence. And that's the thing, isn't it? As the gospel shows us God's grace, Actually, we use our bodies, we use our service, we use our gifts and talents, not for us, but for others. Now, wonderfully, at St. Mary's, I see wonderful examples of that, and I'm certainly a beneficiary of those gifts being used towards me, and I'm very thankful for them. But it's worth, isn't it, just keep coming back to this and thinking this has to be the mood music of our church. We are a new humanity, we are a humanity that is transformed in its worship. And that transformation happens in our minds as we hear the gospel declared. And as we do, it frees us up to use our gifts for others. I guess there's some of us who perhaps come into church feeling quite proud, and there would be others of us who come into church feeling quite useless. And probably we've all felt a combination of the two. But both, in fact, make the same mistake because both focus on me and how I'm perceived. But Paul takes the focus off of us and focuses on the Lord Jesus and concentrates on what he has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for the grace that has been shown to us Thank you for the Lord Jesus who has given his life so that we may be considered part of your people. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to turn from those times where we've used our talents and gifts for ourselves and help us, Father, to be freed from that desire for proclaiming our ego. Thank you, Father, for your grace and compassion. We pray that you would help each one of us to let that trickle down into our service of others. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.